Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We tell the story of the Porsche 917, one of the greatest racing cars in motorsport history. Porsche 917 is one of the most iconic racing cars in history, and it's 50 this year. Hence, this week's Autosport magazine, which is available now, has the 917 on the cover, Ask the question, is it the greatest racing car ever? And all sorts of content, multiple articles in there about the uh, about the 917. So we're also going to have a bit of a chat about it on the podcast. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me first is Kevin Turner, editor of Autosport. Now, we should say, Kevin, I feel like your whole life has been building to this issue of autosport because we should say you, you're you not an entirely unbiased um, witness when it comes to this. I think anyone who looks at your, your Twitter handle, which is, I believe... Is it at KRT nine one seven? It is, yeah. No, I can't. I do try and be as objective as possible, as you know, Ed, with all these sorts of lists and debates and things. But I, yes, I probably should be full disclosure. 
Um, I was fortunate enough to have um, lots of old autosport and motorsport magazines uh, that my dad had when I was a kid, and I read sort of backwards, so from from from, from contemporary and then back in time. And um, 1970, 71 just really caught my imagination. I thought the cars looked cool, sounded amazing. So the, even, yeah, since I was a kid, the 917 has been sort of one of the cars, really. So yes, I've read many books, many many articles, culminating in this week's magazine. I'm a little bit concerned that you haven't come in with a clipboard with lots of bits of paper and your normal lists. Normally, coming to podcast, you are massively well armed. I, I'm sort of thinking if I can't get through a 917 podcast just off the top of my head, then I probably won't be able to do any podcast ever off the top of my head. Fair enough. Well, we'll, we'll consider you uh, well prepared, having built to this your in, entire life. We're also joined by Matt Q, another he- enthusiast, we should say, for historic racing and. Uh, relatively young as well still uh, certainly compared to myself and kev so uh, it's always good to have the next generation of historic enthusiasts here so what's your relationship with the 917 sure so i've only seen a couple in person but obviously watched uh, it was probably got into it through uh, the steve mcqueen film which we may or may not come on to talk about and obviously it's uh, we're gonna we're gonna trawl out these cliches for the next hour or so but it's iconic you know, is where you'd start. So, yeah, as you say, being a fan of historic racing, uh, might only be 23. Rare opportunity to see them, but it's uh, it's a fantastic car. Um, I should also add that Kev Turner also has, without giving away too much of his personal information, he has 917 in his phone number. Imagine it's Yeah, just, that's a fluke. Yeah. That's a happy fluke. On that uh, basis, my favourite car is a Ferrari 355. <laughs> I think I win. Yeah. It's also his PIN number as well. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> yeah, we should probably not talk about too much about people's uh, phone numbers unless you want people phoning you up to disagree with you extensively, Kev. But, uh, well, that'll probably happen anyway. But, but it is, uh, I guess, it is a good place to start, actually, the, the iconic status of this car and actually... The film Le Mans, the Steve McQueen film, probably is a big part of that, isn't it? Because I know in my mind, you know, the Golf 917 wins Le Mans, but of course it didn't, did it? <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> it? It feels like it because of the film. And yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, and I mean, yes, uh, much to John Wire's dismay, uh, the Golf uh, JW Automotive team boss, he didn't win either year that he ran the 917 at Le Mans. They were second in 1971. Uh, 1970 was an atrocious wet race cars crashing and blowing up and all the rest of it and there are only seven classified finishes so and none of them were golf 917 so yeah the film rather skews um but also the film's got bits where they they push a little bit hard on the throttle to go in faster in a straight line i mean come on but, it, but it's, it's, i it's, think it does add to the sort of legend of the car it's also as a film enthusiast i would argue it's i, I really do i do love it but it's not actually much of a film in terms of in terms it, of the narrative structure and that kind of thing but it is wonderful to watch yeah and it's got some genuine well, it's got some genuine footage from the 1970 race and they did supplementary filming where they, they had some pretty serious pieces of kit, including 917s. I mean, that's actually how David Piper lost his leg, was doing the filming for that. Derek Bell got caught in a fire during the filming of it. You know, it was it was quite, in that in that sense, it was quite apt. It was just as perilous doing the film as it probably was doing the race. Well, McQueen wanted to do that film where he approached Ferrari first to get factory support. So does that mean we could be we could have been sitting here doing a podcast about the 512 instead? Uh, but the 512 doesn't have the real-life results to back up the... I think the 512 is a bit cooler, person. Oh, I know this is sacrilege, this is but I do, I do like the 512. There is one particular 512 that, we, that I would agree with that on, but we can come to that later on, probably. <laughs> Excellent. Well... I guess we, we've sort of established one of the reasons why it's iconic, but it's also a very, very successful racing car. And I guess if we look at the start of it, because the funny thing is with the 917 is it is the first great Porsche 
endurance racing car in some ways, isn't it? I, I know that's maybe a little bit harsh on some of its predecessors, but it's the first car that won Le Mans. Yeah, it's probably a bit harsh on the 908, uh, which it's I think is probably one of the great underrated sports cars, three-litre car. Um, but I think the 917, yeah, it's the first big Porsche. Uh, up until that point, Porsche had been... Because uh, you have to remember that, that, that it was a small company as well. It wasn't a big powerhouse. You know, if you try and think about 1968 when the idea, they, they first came up with it. Uh, they'd never won Le Mans. They were a small-time manufacturer. The 911 had only been out a few years. Um, well, this is very much a company that's yet to kind of establish itself absolutely. as the Porsche we, yeah, we kind of know and um, love. They'd punched above their weight in terms of small-engined cars up against... Now, remember, this is the, just through the 60s, you've got Ferrari and Ford going at it with big heavyweight cars. And Porsche were quite good at picking up um, you know, good class results. The occasional overall win at somewhere like... Yeah, the Targa Florio where, you know, the, the brute power wasn't what you needed. Um, and then two things happened, really. They changed the regulations. They all seems sort of a bit ironic now, really, given how quick the 917s were just a couple of years later. But the, I think there was a concern that the Ford Mark IVs and the P4 Ferraris in 1967 were getting too fast. Um, and so they sort of cut, cut back to sports prototypes had to be three litres. But then they wanted, they realised that cars like the GT40, there were a lot of, yeah, the smaller engined one, um, were, there were quite a few of those out there. So the, the, the governing body said, right, if you've got 50 of these cars, you can homologate them in the five litre, effectively a production GT category, pushing it a bit. Um, and then the really, so that brought Porsche's 908 into play in the 907 because obviously all the big stuff had gone. And then the real, the thing that got the ball rolling with the 917 was they cut the 50 down to 25. And then um, Ferdinand Piesch, um, who's a key person in this in the Porsche story, saw an opportunity and, and persuaded Porsche to go, well, well, let's build 25 full house, effectively a five-litre sports prototype, but homologated in the GT class or GT production sports car class. Um, and um, yeah, and they did it in a very short time frame. But it's an interesting car, isn't it? Because it, it wasn't instantly hugely successful was it? it 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 certainly in the first year didn't have the, the the instant impact that you might kind of expect a car like that to have well i think this plays into why it's another reason why it's got the legendary status because so the, the way that porsche had done it um in the previous few years was their their two main things was lightweight so they did a lot of experimenting with uh interesting uh, materials and things so they're always one of the lightest cars on the grid and low drag so long-tailed cars um, so again, maximising the smaller engines, um, cars that they'd been building. That so they took that philosophy with some logic through to the nine one seven, but they'd already started experiencing aerodynamic problems with the nine oh eight. Um, but the nine one seven, the first cars had four and a half litre engines, um, took the performance envelope way beyond not only what Porsche had seen, but they were quicker down the Mulsanne than the Mark IV Fords had been. and They were in a completely new aerodynamic realm, really. And the, the low drag became lift. And so they had absolutely horrific handling at high speed. It was basically speed. the rear end that was lifting, wasn't it? So Yeah. So even worse, almost, at least front end lift, as long as it doesn't go too far, can it's a bit more stable, should we say. Yeah, they could start the seeing the sky appearing more and more through the back. Uh, yeah, through the, you know, in the mirror sort of thing, which is pretty pretty terrifying. Lots of drivers refused to refused to, to to drive the car at all. Um, at the Nurburgring, which is a track that you need a good handling car, none of the works drivers wanted to drive it. 
BMW had a couple of, there were a couple of BMW drivers that persuaded them, yeah, we'll give it a try. As soon as BMW found out about it, they banned them from doing it. And in the end, they had to pay privateer racers, David Piper and Frank Gardner, a lot of money to just uh, under the instruction, get the car to the finish. And they were so pleased that they did get the car to the finish, they apparently got a nice big bonus. So it did pay out for them. <laughs> but yeah, that gives you a bit of an idea really as to how wayward the car was in its in its early days. Well, of course, it's a reminder in that era, the understanding of aerodynamics was still quite rudimentary. And because it was, uh, they, they kind of worked it out Almost by accident, didn't they? I remember this. This is uh, this is talked about in the um, in, in the old sport magazine. Uh, special sort of legend is that they just noticed that there was um, an area on the rear sort of surface bodywork where just there, it wasn't accumulating dirt and that kind of thing. So they could see that they, they weren't. That they were kind of so I presume getting low pressure on the top surface and. Yeah, there's, there was there's quite a, even now. I think there's a little bit of tension as to who spotted because traditionally. John Horseman, one of the um, JW Automotive guys. So after running the car and the 908 in 69, winning the championship, but losing Le Mans, Porsche decided they, I mean, they were throwing a huge amount of resources for such a small company at the project. And they'd lost Le Mans to an ancient GT40 run by JWA. So they basically went to John Wire and said, can you run the cars next year? They went to a test in Austria in 1969. And this is when the solution was, was found. Um, the car came out of that test about, anywhere between three to five seconds of that faster, depending on which driver you speak to. Um, and yeah, the big solution was there were lots of bugs all over the car, except the rear deck, um, because there, there was no airflow getting that far. So that you know, showed that the, the tail wasn't doing anything. Um, so the solution was to build up, build up the tail, get higher and higher and higher until it was in the airflow now who spotted that first is open to debate but um, it's probably like all these things it's not it, there's rarely a eureka moment necessarily isn't it sometimes a little bit more slow process isn't it than uh, but, it, but that is interesting that it's it, so it's kind of come down to a effectively an outside team that's that's picked up on this uh, and although obviously why was the the sort of the porsche team in 1970 it's just it's just interesting and that's a team that's often forgotten actually i think well, it's meant, I mean, it's mentioned a lot, but but John Wire is an important figure actually, as as terms of running teams in that in that era. And one of the subplots actually is his uh, tension with uh, with Piesh because they're completely different types of character. Wire was a very conservative, small C. Everything that I'm going to go to the racetrack with is going to be it's going to have been tested, and we're going to run at this pace. Except those hubs at Sebring in 1970. Well, that yeah, absolutely. But I think that 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 affected the relationship because that was only the second time that that they ran the, the Porsches, and Porsche came up with oh, we've got these new hubs for Sebring. They'd won Daytona by an absolute mile. Um, most of the cars had fallen apart, fallen apart actually in Ferraris, but. Um, yeah, at Sebring they had these new hubs that hadn't been tested and, and why I ran them and they broke and Ferrari Ferrari won the race. And I think from then on, that just underlined why is, well, I might not actually want to run everything. And, and Porsche were putting new three new things on the 917 all the time. I think every single car was different and they were probably in a different spec pretty much every time they appeared. Um, but what Porsche did that really irritated why was to have a second works team. So 1970s Porsche Salzburg. So what tended... And Vic, Vic Elford was the best Porsche driver not part of the Golf setup. So it was great for Porsche. They'd offer the piece, whatever it was, to Wire, who would quite often say, no, we'll wait until it's proven. And then the very next day, that part would be bolted on to the Porsche Salzburg car. And yeah, Vic Elford would cause all sorts of problems for them. Well, the classic one, actually, is when they brought out the 4.9-litre engine for Monza. Uh, 
and it had an oil leak during practice. So I went, no, we'll go back to the four and a half and found that the 4.9 was in the Elford RN's car the following day and they were disappearing down the road when they had a puncture. So there was quite a lot of, I don't think they ever really saw eye to eye wire and, and, and some of the Porsche management. It's funny, isn't it? Because like 1970, you look at that, that was the, the, the wire Porsche was the strongest car, although they didn't manage to win. Le Mans or, or Sebring that year, although obviously they were, um, Le Mans was won by the Porsche, but not not the wire one. So that, but the 1970 is the kind of point where the 917 becomes this all conquering machine. Uh, I guess one interesting thing, Matt, is the the opposition they're up against at that at that stage. Now, I always think it's a little bit dangerous to uh, rate things too much by the opposition because you can't control your opposition. Sometimes, you know, you could say a similar thing about Toyota's Le Mans wins recently, but. Uh, in terms of the wider landscape of the kind of competition they were up against and the, and the environment they were in, how difficult was it for Porsche to be so successful? Well, from my perspective, coming into it as a younger person, sort of the first chance I got to see a 917 in the flesh was in sort of, uh, I think, historic racing, where tradition, well, traditionally with modern historic racing, its competition these days is the Lola T70 Mark III B. But at the time, this Eric Bordley design, that was that was for privateers to come along and go racing. And, you know, it had it had basically an off-the-shelf Chevrolet 5-litre engine. It was nowhere near, well, I was going to say nowhere near the bespoke quality of the Porsche, but that, of course it's flat 12, with two flat 6s bolted, bolted together. It was almost a make-doing, mend in its own right. I'm not getting too many major faces from Kevin Yeah, Turner. there were some quite key... There were some quite key um, uh, changes to it, like the central central crank and things um, for the for the flat twelve. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that Matt picks out the Lola because obviously in period that would have been absolutely. I wouldn't have seen which way a nine one seven had gone. Um, and I talked to Gary Pearson about this. In a, um, for actually, we did a small piece in the issue. You know, why is the nine one seven? Does it struggle against the T seven? It's because for two reasons really. A Chevy engine would have been producing an unreliable 400 and let's say 460, 470 operating horsepower in period and now can be cranked up to well over 500 reliably, whereas the 917 has gone the other way because it's a bit exotic and if you blow a Porsche 917 engine up, then it's serious money. And the other one is is modern chassis technology. So the Lola is a semi-monocoque, so you can you can stiffen everything up and it takes it, whereas the one of the 917 strengths at the time was its lightweight space frame and you start stiffening suspension up and hitting curbs, and you just crack the suspension. Uh, you crack the chassis tubes. So it, it, the things that worked for it in period have kind of been negated, really. Um, but have you ever seen a 512 racing? No, I've never seen... I think the closest we got we, uh, was Goodwood Revival last year, where we completely missed the two that were on display. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, in the, uh, in the, in the, sort of the, yeah. the show, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think... Th- the the opposition really the main opposition is Ferrari. They actually works Alfa Romeo and Matra teams that dipped in and out during that period as well. Ferrari is the main one, and in nineteen seventy Ferrari just didn't do as good enough job. The car wasn't quite as powerful and it was a bit too heavy. So power to weight ratio key thing, and Ferrari hadn't got their car out early enough, so they were having instability problems that Porsche had already solved by nineteen seventy. Think the five one two M, which is the car that appeared at the end of nineteen seventy. Actually, Jackie X blew the nine one seven away at the airstrike ring at the end of the season before it failed. So I think Porsche knew they had to up their game. So you know they had a full five liter engine. They were just one of the reasons that I put the nine one seven forward as being the greatest racing car is because of the number of innovations that they use. There's drilled brake discs coming during that point. They tried ABS. They actually did even think about reversing the cooling fan on the top of the engine to suck effectively create a vacuum underneath and produce downforce. 
it actually showered the engine with too much debris. Um, so they thought, well, yeah, let's not go down that road. But they were trying different things all the time. So, so to kind of come back around to the original question, yeah, I mean, we talked about kind of the opposition that was there. So how how serious do we do we think it was? There's always this this question mark, isn't there, that you can judge it by the opposition, but if a car's such a step forward, it can make the opposition look weaker, should we say, than it perhaps was fundamentally. Well, I think with the 917, it's, it's prime goal from Porsche was to win Le Mans. So they, it was an onslaught. I mean, so 1970, when, when uh, Herman and Atwood finally won Le Mans for Porsche, I think they qualified fifth. And it was through a race of attrition that they, they came to the front. You know, they, this was, Porsche dominated that race with entries. Um, and it's something they had done in their past, like 935s, where it's dominated the whole grid. But I, they were, it was a relentless attack to go out and win. Yeah, I think that's fair. Although I would say I think they were way lower than that. I think they were about 14th on the grid, the 1970 car, I think. I must admit, admit, Le Mans grid positions are one of those things that you quite quite easily lose. Yeah, well, they were, I think they were about 12 seconds off in qualifying. And actually, I did have the good fortune to talk to Richard Atwood about that. And he. He'd driven he he he'd driven the the wayward car in '69 with Vic Elford. They Porsche had said you won't get to the finish; it's a bit of a waste of time. But Vic Elford was adamant. He always wanted the fastest thing he could get his hands on, because you know why? He said, "Why, why drive hard in the corners and I can just blow down the whole side twenty mile hour fast and everything else?" Um, and they absolutely sort of they were so careful with Rolf Stomley went out and just blitzed it to sort of yeah this is how quick it is but Elford and Atwood I think were trying to get the car to the end they got to within three three hours or so of the finish which was much further than Porsche had expected and the car broke and Atwood had no desire to drive the car he was quite pleased when it broke even though they were way ahead in the lead 1970 they asked him early on what do you want you want I want a short tail I want the four and a half um basically the slowest version of the 917 he could think of to get to the end. And he realised in practice that maybe he'd gone too far because they just had no pace whatsoever. But as as Matt, I mean, it, it was a non-stalk. There were Paul Salzburg cars that had a, lo- had a long tail with a five-litre engine. They had the short tail with a four-and-a-half. They had a long tail with a four-and-a-half. And Golf were there as well. Obviously, John Y with the main the main entry as well it, it was yeah but then Ferrari in fairness there were lots of Ferraris as well like it was a proper Porsche Ferrari head-to-head one of the first ones actually um unfortunately the weather kind of spoiled it I think otherwise it could have been a real a real set to um but yeah they they just kept going they didn't have any problems and, and that would actually even when he tells the story now how are we in the lead after nine or ten hours is absolutely ridiculous and they just plodded along and kept it going and I guess it's worth just going over how dominant the 917 was in 1970 and 71. Obviously, it won the World Endurance Championship both years. It's basically won all the all the major races. Um, you know, it's won Daytona, Sebring, Le Mans in 70, Target Florio as well in 70, and it's won Daytona, Sebring, Le Mans in 71 as well, although not the, I think Alpha won the Targa in, the, in 71. Um, well, the Targa was the 908. Three, of course. Oh, of course so, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, oh, one, they switched back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Seems... The one thing I would put against the 917 is that it doesn't have a win to its name at the Nurburgring 1000 kilometres, which I think is one of the key races. But that's because Porsche had another awesome car ready to go. It wasn't, you know, that, that shows how much they were pushing everything. And they actually had, because PS liked internal competition, slightly Enzo Ferrari ish in that way. Um, he had two. They had two separate 
project managers for the 917 and the 908. So they were both almost playing off against each other. And the 908, I think, did a lap time that was, I think it was fractionally quicker around the Nürburgring, but the real killer was it could do it on one one less fuel stop than the 917. So obviously it's a no-brainer then. And they so they wheeled the 908 three out for Targa and and um and Nürburgring. Yeah, of course, yeah. No, that, that I was thinking about Porsche wins, but yeah, but if you look at it 1771 there's there's 21 World Endurance Championship races and they've won the vast majority of them. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was was the car to have. I suppose at this point we should bring in the the, the 512M uh, that we hinted at earlier on, which is actually quite key to the next part of the Porsche story as well, so it's it's it's, it's, it's a good one to talk about. So, um Roger Penske Tried to get hold of a 917, got through to the wrong person, didn't work out, didn't get the car, decided to get a Ferrari instead. He wasn't overly impressed with it. Uh, Mark, Mark Donoghue, he's sort of race, race driver and engineer, and Don Cox, who was a big character at Penske as well. Can I just use this as an opportunity to recommend everyone acquire and read a copy of Mark Donoghue's The Unfair Advantage? Which is one of the all-time great motor racing books, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I'd say, I'd agree with that. In fact, if you if the if you want to read more about the Nine One Seven, I say the Donahue book and and Peter Morgan's a book on the Nine One Seven. Um, they're the two go-to ones, I, I would say. But um, it's good to set further reading after podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> you and you should course, on this, of topic. course. Autosport magazine first. Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, I'll get the plugs yeah. right in the right order. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought you'd already done that. You see, so I'm going to keep plugging but, it. Can't, so, you, can, you can't. You can't plug too much. Buy Auto Sport Mag. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so they they weren't overly impressed with the Ferrari. So they did the classic Pensy. They completely stripped the car down. They really, I think in the end they got so frustrated with trying to get parts from Ferrari that they started fabricating their own things. They the Americans were ahead of the Europeans in terms of downforce and wings through Can-Am. Um, largely through Canam anyway, and so they put a big wing on the back. Traco did an engine um, that was more powerful than Ferrari had managed to. Be. It, it was a very special car, and it, they they wheeled it out for Daytona for nineteen seventy one, and it and it blew it blew the Porsches away in qualifying. Rodriguez hung on to Donahue in the race, but then Penske had its uh, its other. Uh, secret weapon was its refueling system. So they were, you know, John Wise team was known as being pretty. You know, pretty on top of all that, but Penske blew them away as well. Um, uh, but it, but it had uh, there there were problems, and then it had a crash. I think during the night, um, and every time the Penske five one two M turned up, uh, went head to head with the the nine one seven. It was faster, except for at Le Mans, where it it, it couldn't keep up with the long tails. Um, but it, it was a very special car. And I think it was partly that, plus the frustrations with why that made Porsche go. Actually, with, they knew Porsche knew that the car was going to be banned at the end of the year. The five-year sports car regulation. So basically, almost they the, the governing body had announced that it was going to be banned almost as soon as they yeah. realised what was happening. So they Porsche knew they couldn't do anything more with an R one seven for seventy two unless they went Can Am. And John Y wanted to go Can Am with them, um, but I think that the the, the Penske operation, the fact that it already had a knowledge of Can-Am and was, had this incredible one-off Ferrari that was giving them all sorts of trouble whenever it appeared, I think persuaded or helped persuade Porsche to go to Roger Penske to come up with the, with the Can-Am project. Well, we'll talk about in depth about the, the Can-Am version because that's a, a whole different chapter, isn't it, of, of, about this car. But we should say that in the, in the magazine, again, plugging, there, there's a few little um, little facts you've thrown in about um, that, that sort of quantify the uh, the pace of the car, one of which is the uh, is the Spa 
winning speed which uh because there's so many pages i'm trying to i'm trying to actually turn through the page as we speak to find it but the the, the spa winning speed in is it 71 71 is, yeah. is faster than still than the average grand prix fastest winning speed yeah they they have and they finished together it was a it was a one of the things um uh, J- james newbold helps out with this although he's uncredited so sorry james um uh, because he spoke to jackie oliver uh, about it and one of the things i always wanted to know is why didn't they take the long because the long tail was sorted by 71 all the drivers said so. Uh, why didn't they take it anywhere else? Because in those days, Spa and Monza were both faster average speeds than Le Mans anyway. Well, this was the old, the old, this was the old, the old big, long Spa, scary Spa with the master kink and all the rest of it. And uh, most of it, you, you can still and, drive around. Uh, yeah, all of that. It's, yeah, it's well worth doing if you ever go to Spa. It's very easy to accidentally find yourself on it, so, <laughs> so it's very easy to find. That's the other Excellent. good thing. Uh, uh, and Oliver basically agreed. He said, oh, "I would have been absolutely awesome to take the long tail car there, um, but why would you?" Because the two short tails, and, and John Wyatt, to be fair to JW, they'd done some of their own development, so it wasn't just Porsche, and they'd come up with a little mid-wing aerofoil, I suppose you'd call it, between the two uh, parts of the tail for extra stability, but for reduced drag uh, on the high-speed circuits. And the, the, the two 917s, bearing in mind, this is also where the Ferrari have got the works 312P, which obviously goes on to dominate sports car racing in the 3-litre era. Um it just completely run out of puff at Spa. They just drive to the distance, and they they the third place car is four laps behind. And yeah, they average one hundred and fifty five, one hundred and fifty four point eight miles an yeah, hour. Yeah. Just looking at that, sir. Uh, yeah, and that's the, with driver changes and fuel. St- I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's really. on the page with the the excellent J- uh, Jake Boxer legs uh, technical analysis. Yeah, it's got right. a wonderful cutaway draw. Yeah. Kind of cutaway drawings you don't um, you, you can't do nowadays, but it's just great. Uh, to, great and my to other see my other Spa fact is from the year before. When I think it's Rodriguez's fastest lap was ten point nine seconds faster than the Formula One fastest lap from the Grand Prix that year. <laughs> there's actually another fact I liked in here, which just which, <laughs> two facts in a whole thing. There's, there's, <laughs> yeah, many pages. You've done, you've done well, but there's there's this fact about um, the the sixty nine uh, pole time, uh, Ross Tomlin's time being one point five seconds faster than Bruce McLaren's previous record, despite the, the addition of the uh, the Ford Duquesne. Yeah, so so that, that sort of te- the reason I like that is that tells you how like the, the first fact tells you just how quick the car was. It was arguably the quickest racing car around there for road racing. And this one tells you how big it took how much it took the game on, even even in nineteen sixty nine when it wasn't quite what it would be. And you can see why the sports governing body was so miffed because within two years of getting rid of the big monsters, the nine one seven was was quicker. Um, and I mean, actually, if you think about it, yeah, the Narsen was a bespoke sports prototype with a proper racing engine. Whereas, with all due respect to the various marks of GT40, which obviously is another legendary car, but the seven liter, oh, it was basically a NASCAR, a NASCAR engine that was, you know, a very uh, understressed car. So I suspect that, I, you know, that those seven liters wouldn't have been chucking out more than probably, I don't know, 480. So less powerful than the four and a half Porsche engine and in a big, heavy. Actually, the Mark IVs were, were quite special as well, but not in the way that the Narman Seven was. So it just it just moved the envelope completely out of out of you know into a new into a new realm, and that's before we even get to Can-Am and turbocharging. We should say just as a uh, as a mention, obviously the the nine one seven not appears to be the safest car, and obviously John Wolfe was killed in sixty nine at Le Mans for. Obviously, there was wider significance to to that accident in terms of what it meant for the way Le Mans was started. Well, yes. I mean, that's the, the, the obviously the, the famous Le Mans start running across the road and jumping in, uh, and 
I mean, it, certain drivers weren't a fan of it already. Now, Jackie Ickes, who wasn't actually part of the safety crusade in the way that Jackie Stewart was at that time, but even he thought that the, the because it encouraged drivers to jump in into the cars without doing their belts up. Uh, which, you, absolutely, you would do that. Yeah, you wanna, you, that, of course exactly, you would. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the quick, um, that's the quickest way to do it. So he's famously at the start of '69 race, he walked across to his GT40, which, given how close the finish was, is obviously that's why it's another reason why it's remembered. Wolf, um, it, it, he was to share. That was the first privateer in Armand Seven. He was to share it with Digby Martland. Martland had, I think, something like three complete spins without hitting anything in practice. Drove in and retired. And went, I'm not driving that. Goodbye. Uh, Porsche provided a driver but they couldn't persuade Wolf not to take the start and he wasn't completely inexperienced sometimes it's oh he didn't have experience he had driven chevrons and things but there was nothing to prepare you for the 917 really and he made I think what, what he, he got a couple of wheels on the grass at White House which in, in those days was a proper uh, again if you if you go around some of the um, service roads at Le Mans you can find the the old bits of track and how what it's so narrow you can't believe how narrow it is so it's a small error with huge consequences gets a couple of wheels on the grass he goes off and it horrible accident i mean some of the pictures of what bits are left i mean it's yeah it's not not very nice and he he was he was killed and it created a fire across the circuit big traffic jam which x was in because he'd done these protest i think it took out one of the ferraris as well um so as well combined that with the pace of the 917. I think the first couple of cars would have come through, and then it would probably have been rather weird. Like something obviously happened, um, and Porsche got a lot of criticism for allowing Wolf to drive that car. Um, and actually, reading old, um, um, yeah, old magazines, you can. There's also some criticism for the governing body. You know, you forced Porsche to build 25 of these cars, and there are definitely not 50 drivers capable of driving them. Um, and in fact, Vic Elford said even some of the works Porsche drivers perhaps weren't capable of getting the maximum. Well, when you consider it. you consider some of the drivers who drove that who found it difficult, particularly in that trim, that's uh, that says a lot, doesn't it? Well, Vic Elford is the only one I've spoken to who genuinely seems to have liked even the early car. I think because he just liked the idea of cracking past everything. He said it was so scary. Other drivers got out of his way, made it even easier. It's like as soon as they saw it in the mirror, they were all, yeah. If you were driving, imagine if you're doing going down the Molson 100, you're probably flat out in a 911 at I don't know what 150. And even the early, the first 917 with the four and a half in it would have been coded into 220. So it's a 70 mile hour approach speed, and the car's wandering across the road in your mirrors as it's coming up behind. You probably would jump out of the way as much as you could, wouldn't you? So, what, what, what's the official uh, 917? Speed record fix. I, I I see I see a, a range of about six miles an hour yeah, compared to what it would do on Mulsanne. I think yeah, there are a few different quotes to it. I think that Porsche uh, calculated that the long tail in seventy one, which is the ultimate Le Mans version, should have been able to do two hundred and fifty one miles an hour. They couldn't do that, and they eventually worked out a little while later it's because they hadn't calculated tire growth at that speed, and I. Th- Think so your rolling resistance is up. And, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I think it was a <laughs> yeah, speed. So I think it was a mere two hundred and forty-three miles an hour. How's that all? That's all. Uh, but interestingly, Mark Donahue, we'll get onto this uh, in a moment. But when he was developing the nine seven thirty, which is arguably the ultimate racing car, full stop, he was testing at Paul Ricard ahead of seventy three season, uh, and he was getting frustrated that the car wouldn't do more than about two hundred and twelve miles an hour. I mean. You know, a measly 212. And he went to Porsche Engines. There are only two cars I know of that can do more than this. The Mark IV 
forward at Le Mans and the long tail 917. So stick a long tail on it, please. So he persuaded him to do it. And uh, the lap time actually was about the same because he, he lost in downfall, sort of he gained down the straight. But he, he just wanted it because he had his arm Riverside finale. He wanted to do 250 miles an hour in a race, in a Can-Am race. And just before the race, the organisers cut and made them go on the shorter circuit. Donahue was pretty miffed. So the 9730 actually never raced to its maximum potential in terms of straight line speed. Well, this is probably a good time to get on to the uh, the Can-Am continuation, shall we say, of the, uh, the car. I mean, Matt, that is a, they did go a bit mental at that point, didn't they? Yeah, well, it's the closest thing to an unlimited formula. And when the 91730 came along, I think qualifying trim, 1500 horsepower there or thereabouts and then turned all the way down to poultry 1100 horsepower for for race spec yeah and it, it in a way it's it's almost adds to the the sort of argument for it being the greatest car although it's probably terrible to the spectacle of watching these cars is amazing but i imagine the for the way donahue dominated the championship it probably wasn't particularly spectacular to watch for the wheel-to-wheel races but like i said it adds to that sort of awe around it because it effectively killed a period of that championship because after that they changed the regulations you had the oil crisis come in you had sort of one last hurrah with the uh with the um the shadow the next the next year and then from then on you sort of went to sort of adapted formula 5000 cars so in terms of can-am you have like the the domination of the mclarens you know the iterations of m8 and you get to 91730 and it, it stops the championship in its track in its tracks, and that's just so so impressive. Yeah, I think one of the it's absolutely right. We're saying, that, and one of Porsche's frustrations was, um, uh, yeah, Can-Am is remembered with a lot of nostalgia for the reasons that you say with the unlimited. But I mean, the racing, I think by and large, was pretty poor. Yeah. Partly because McLaren did such a good job. Now McLaren went monocoque. Um, so they were ahead in terms of the stiffness lightness ratio of Porsche so Porsche knew and of course the, the Chevrolet engines that McLaren were using getting bigger and bigger and bigger so Porsche did dip its toe in Can-Am in 69 um, and 71 with Joe Siffert in a kind of semi-privateer effort I suppose you'd call it um, and the car tended to be reliable it was quite good at finishing fourth it seemed to be quite good at that Um but couldn't really touch the McLaren. So Porsche knew they needed to go big on power. The two options were 16-cylinder engine. I mean, that just completely... It was so long, the 16-cylinder engine. It made the car... The handling was all out again. So they realised turbocharging was the way to go. Uh, and the thing that frustrated Porsche was they put an awful lot of effort into that um, engine programme and then were effectively banned after two years, whereas McLaren had been dominating the championship since 67, all the way up to 71, and that was fine. I think if you were being generous, you'd say, well, that's because Porsche came with technology that no one else could do. And so the organisers probably thought, how, you know, other people did have a go at turbocharging a road course engine, and they couldn't do it. The reason that Porsche were able to do it actually is because of Donahue. So this is where Donahue's so key to the story. Porsche could not get the turbo to work. Um, it wouldn't. They couldn't start it even. And he went across. They they flew an engine out. It it broke. It was all sorts of broken. And then Don he went. I'm coming to Germany. And he went there. And he had good relationship with a couple of the key Porsche engineers. Uh, and he basically persuaded them to run the engine normally aspirated. And that then gave them the dyno data to go back to Bosch on the electronic management of the engine. And because there's an extra parameter. 
to, to, to the um, to the management system, which was obviously turbo boost. Then they were able to map the engine and come up with the system, and then it worked. And once that was done, Penske had already done its chassis um, changes, and they, it was Penske that persuaded Porsche to put big wings on the car. Porsche wanted to do another low-drag Can-Am car, which would have been, again, a disaster. Um, McLaren, they wouldn't have beaten McLaren. McLaren was already doing a good job. Um, so it required Penske's input on the aero and Donahue on the engine. But in fairness to Porsche, they then pursued that and got it all working. And they rocked up at the start of 72 with the 91710, um, which is a forgotten car, actually, the 91710, because it's kind of the interim one. But it, it is what killed McLaren. McLaren were gone by the time the 9730 came in because the 91710 had seen them off. And it does just give this tremendous continuation, doesn't it? Because you have the two two years of dominance of World Endurance Championship and then two years in, in Canon with Fulmer and then, and then Donahue. So it's like this four-year lifespan neatly divided um, with that sort of preface in 69. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, one, of the, one of the points that I think made in the, tried to make in the magazine is that I, it's the only car I can think of that was essentially banned from two international categories having dominated both of them um that's pretty you know we've had cars that have you know, the brabham fan car that was not banned but kind of was unofficially and there's certain cars that were that were legislated out of motorsport but for, to, but for to have t- two major championships that you've basically done such a good job of dominating that they changed the rules i think is pretty pretty special well, this is why it becomes so hard to argue against the 917 from being the greatest race car of all of all time. Because if you take, for instance, the the post twenty seventeen Mercedes hybrid, I would add your the Grand Prix expert here. You would say that's essentially a development of of one car, but since it has a different name, it then it then sort of is is two separate cars. Whereas the nine one seven, it sort of transcended. You know. Uh, was it from from four and a half liters up to up to four point nine, then up to five liters? Yeah, I think, and then and then five point four at the end with the turbo. Yeah, obviously you had K, you had long tail, you had um, you know uh, nine seventeen ten, nine seventeen thirty. It it's lifespan, and and also you could you could start it the story before because of how much it was based on the nine oh eight, and then obviously. Uh, the 917 its structure became the template for group c racing as well so for for how for how many sort of different disciplines the success the how many iterations the development for all of what it spans it's a pretty concrete case for it being the greatest because you kept say yeah like if, if i was if i was to come back to it if if other cars basically kept their name for longer maybe there was there'd be a more a more close rival but there's nothing quite like sort of the lifespan. And of course, we should say it had that. It also had a life in interseries as well, yeah, which is yeah. the uh, it's often forgotten interseries, but that's kind of a, a sort of European Canaan, sort of unrestricted. And it actually, interseries kind of limped on until about ten years ago. I think they were still into a series champ. I can remember seeing an interseries race at uh, Lausitz in 2006, supporting A1 GP. No, 2005 that would have been because that was the second A1 GP race. But yeah, but that, that had success there with drivers like Kinnan and obviously obviously winning there as well. Well, the, one of the, to pick up on both those points, um, uh, I did ask Vic Helford, because he, I, I believe he's the only driver to have driven every single iteration of the 917. I said, oh, how similar actually was the last one to the first one? I mean, are we into a sort of a 911 type thing where, you know, a current GT 911 is clearly not the same as a, you know, 1970 Carrera 911. And he said, no, what it was, he said, it felt exactly the same, but just 
more power. <laughs> yeah, it was the, the the basic space frame chassis. There were again there were tweaks, yes, but the, again the engine was fundamentally that you know, obviously it had turbos bolted on it and it got bigger, but it was still the same engine. Everything was just constantly evolved, but in a very short time frame. So it did all it did still feel like an R and seven in in his opinion. I'm I'm sort of fairly happy to go with with Alfred. It's probably a good time to bring in the inevitable ranking list you've done. You're not allowed onto a podcast without there being some kind of ranking list involved. And in the in the Autosport magazine, the Porsche nine one seven special available now, another plug, uh, you have picked out the top five nine one seven drivers. Uh, so should, should we address them in reverse order? You've got number five, uh, Brian Redman. Yeah, it was quite a, a close run thing for five. The first four, I thought, picked themselves quite easily. But the fifth one, it could have been uh, Rolf Stommelin with his, almost on the basis of his qualifying lap at 1669 at Le Mans. Jack Oliver, who still holds the record for the fastest, as in lowest time around Le Mans ever. He did a three minute 13.6, I think it was on the test day in 71 in the long tail. Um, just ridiculous. But in the end, I gave it to Brian Redman. Uh, I think he's one of the great underrated drivers. Um uh, you know, he he had such incredible co-drivers during his career, Andretti, uh, Ix, Siffert, and he always matched up well to them. Very rarely made a mistake. Um, the golf team in 70, um, Redmond and Joe Siffert were the sort of Porsche pairing. Porsche placed them at the team. And Wire had uh, Pedro Rodriguez and Leo Kinnanen. And certainly Siffert always felt that they got the the worst end of the deal and the results certainly went tended to go against them um but they were you know redmond was was right in their absolute top-notch driver and actually they would have won Le Mans had Siffert not blown the engine up going past the pits um so so yeah redmond was redmond made it in at, n- at number five well number four kev is vic alford you've previously mentioned him as a bit of a bit of a problem for the for the wire team with his, his salzburg porsche antics yeah I, I, when i was looking at i was, Looking this up, it's outrageous that he only has one World Sports Car Championship win to his name in a 917. Just absolutely ridiculous. But um, yeah, he was always, he was always, I mean, he's actually the star of those first, uh, Matt was talking about the film Le Mans, the white long-tailed car with the red flashes, which he, which features strongly at the start of the, of the film, or start of the race in the film. That is him because he, he led from, he led from pole, um, and he he reckons that uh, that's it, that was his favourite moment actually racing that car at Le Mans. But yeah, he was yeah, he was absolutely top notch. Again, another underrated driver, I think. Actually, um, I tend to kind of pair Alfred and Redmond together, and they're both outstanding drivers, versatile. But they they both I think the reason both of them get a little bit underrated is neither of them have kind of a an automatic subtitle as to what they did. If you see what mm. I mean, it's like very good in a lot of things, won a lot of things, but it, they don't have kind of the the Derek Bell many Le Mans wins and that kind of thing to, to, that you sort of straight away go to, which I think does them a disservice in, in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did interview, I did a, a different, another list a couple of years ago on the best uh, sports car drivers never to win Le Mans and, and Elford was on it. And, and I, it's interesting when you speak to these drivers as to what their view on it is. And a lot of them are sort of philosophic, philosophical about, well, you know, I want other things, but it still quite irritates him, especially as he's the one that he was convinced that Nolan Seven could win Le Mans. And I think even now he's he's annoyed that it wasn't him. Um, and he did have a bit of it. Wasn't always that he went for the new kit, and that's why he, that's why it failed. Sometimes he was just just unlucky, like with the puncture at um, at the Monza race I mentioned earlier. Um, but no, you're probably right. I mean, Elford's claim to fame is winning Daytona and, and Monte Carlo in the same Monte Carlo Rally. I mean, he was incredible, and he won the first ever Rallycross event at Lydon. Just an incredibly versatile driver that people don't remember because very well because he didn't go and 
and have a big F1 mm. career. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, an outstanding driver. Well, number three on the list is uh, Joe Siffert, who I tend to think of as he's a sort of second wire driver of, of the year, isn't he? I think that's a perfect way of uh, putting him in, although he would have hated that. I mean, Siffert and Rodriguez were obviously teammates at BRM and at Porsche, and they had a real rivalry. I mean, it's sometimes it overstepped the mark. I mean, the, the famous incident of them crashing into or bumping into each other through Eau Rouge on the first lap at the 1970 Spa 1000 kilometres. I mean, they hit each other twice on, on the left-hand part and then the right-hand part. There is a bit of footage, actually. And they're so far ahead of the field already. I mean, it's only a few hundred yards after the start, and they've, they just only care about each other. But by and large, Rodriguez tended to get the upper hand. When you read a, a contemporary report, you get the impression that Pedro Rodriguez is doing everything with his fingertips, and it's all finesse and balance, and Siffert's kind of doing it a bit more, elbows out having to probably try a bit harder to do the lap times. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was he was the Porsche driver in 69. Him and Redmond won everything in the 908, really. And he gave the 917 its first first win in 69. So had had to be in the list, but yeah, misses out on a top top two slot, really. Uh, number two is Mark Donoghue, who we've, we've touched on a little bit. Should have been probably a, a, a two-time Can-Am champion in the, in the 917, but obviously he missed the... Uh, Missed the, the 72 season um, the campaign of George Fulmer. Well, no, he, he missed out on being able to fly for that championship owing to, uh, owing to injuries. He did, did come back in that season, not miss the whole thing, but that, that undermined him. But what, what do you make of Donoghue, Matt? Because Donoghue's another one of these extraordinary drivers who's just a fantastic story. And again, maybe he's a driver who gets a little bit overlooked because he doesn't quite have that same list, uh, that same sort of peak achievement although obviously the 500s perhaps the uh the, obviously the, the big race he did win yeah i'd agree with that and th- although the the 1730s sort of uh so well uh remembered or revered for its power it's also worth remembering not only was obviously donahue a great person in terms of his car control but he also had a great like engineering mind as well which i think is probably probably lost a little bit but then he could also un- unplug that and then do 246 miles an hour at talladega i think that was the the, the the record speed they set to yeah, close score speed record though they yeah. said there's an article on that in the special edition of Autosport magazine out now fantastic another seamless plug yeah but people almost wouldn't notice well it's not your first podcast Ed but there's there is still you know this there is still uh, I think there's footage on YouTube or other internet video streaming supplying services but obviously that the the nine one seven thirty had uh, I think it was was it four or six years out of out of uh, out of the public eye rocked up with this new livery and then and then basically he he was a person they drafted in to to do that yeah just a just a great little uh, almost footnote isn't that so that's another good feature to read and well number one driver who has been touched on already Kev is, is Pedro Rodriguez who I, I kind of associate with being mega in the wet at places like Brands Hatch in 1972 I, I and think Spa as well. um, yeah I think his drive at Brands Hatch uh, in 1970 the people that that don't know. Um, he got. Didn't he get? Didn't he get black flagged? He at one got stage? black flagged very early on for allegedly passing under yellows, which he was always adamant that he didn't. And to be honest, there's some again. There's footage of that. It's quite um, wet that race, isn't it? So wet. you can it's understand he may not. Possible that you'd have missed it. I don't think it. I don't think he was pushing his luck. Let's put it that way. Um, and he dropped nearly a lap behind. And it was. I think it was about a six-hour race, and he ended up doing about five hours thirty-five or something. And he went from being the lap behind to winning by five laps. 
Um, so it was, uh, and, and as I say, there's footage of it, and it is it is dancing. I there's there's that, some great. I, I got in my mind's eye. I'm um, really sideways off druids off the hairpin. That's absolutely yeah. But, it, but and it's kind of a drift. It's sort it's of drift, a, not a drift and overs to it at the same time. Yeah. It's, but it's also it's he doesn't lose massive amount. I mean, anytime you're sideways, you are by definition not quite going in the right direction. But it wasn't. A sl- it wasn't a half spin kind of thing. It was no, it was no. that sort of angle um, of a half spin. But there, there is beautiful. a bit of footage of that car spinning, and I think that is Kinnanen doing his very brief stint, which I think is why he was then brought in. I think Pedro was just in the zone, basically. In fairness, Vic Elford was as well. He came through to second, um, uh, but they had different tyres, and I think you're in a situation where Pedro probably had a better tyre. But even so, so that was one of the great all-time wet weather performances in any category. He also, John Wye reckoned that Rodriguez's best driver was at the airstrike ring in 71 when they had a delay and he was coming back and he was taking huge chunks of time out of Clay Regards only in the 3-on-2P. And it was going to be nip and tuck. Um, and then the Ferrari had a, I think it had an accident and, 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 and Pedro won anyway. And at Monza in 1970, uh, he basically single-handedly def- defeated a, a three, he was chased throughout by three, Five on two Ferraris, and I think Ferrari were moving Chris Amon, who was the quickest Ferrari driver that day, in and out of different cars. I think he was in at least two of them to try and catch him, and they just couldn't. So I think he's the he is the nine one seven driver. I think Donahue is the nine one is the most important in terms of the technical side, but I think yeah, the powder blue, orange, sideways nine one seven K. It's 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 got to be Pedro, I think. And he's like eight of its fifteen WEC wins as well. So yeah. that yeah. was a that was kind of a. Uh, and a testament to his, course, his tra- tragic irony about Pedro Rodriguez is that he was killed doing an interseries. I think it was an interseries race, certainly a non-championship sports car race in a Ferrari five one two. So having raced against it in the nine one seven, yeah, this nine one seven fierce in reputation, um, absolutely fine, never any problems, and did a and killed in a relatively minor race in in, in the rival car. Yeah, there's a certain uh, symmetry there with the Rodriguez brothers, isn't there? With the Ricardo earlier said something similar fate, kind of in an off-program outing, <laughs> should we? Uh, should we say? Well, uh, just to finish off, let's let's just have a little bit of a personal view from you. What's, what's the fa- favourite nine one seven? Like I said, there's multiple iterations of it. The uh, the magazine special edition, which I'm mentioning again, has got a a kind of um, a kind of index of all the, the forms of the the car. You've got a total of nine different versions there in Can-Am and Interseri and. And, and wex spec so which is the favorite kev you can go first as as krt 917 well the answer to this is on my um lounge at home in, on the wall at home because i've got two racing cars uh up at home and one of them is um the 1971 long-tailed 917 at le mans after that, that although it's the least successful it's about the only 917 that didn't win anything but that i just think that the for the Porsche engineers, it was key because they proved that the long tail thing could work. They'd come through that. And if you compare that car to the 69 car, you can see the changes happening multiple at that time, squarer, lower wing on the back. You know, it's all, it's, it's all, you can suddenly see a modern sports car appearing. I think with the sort of car that you wouldn't, wouldn't have looked out of place on a group C grid. Um, so yeah. And the liveries were cool, both the martini, silver, blue and red and the golf ones. Matt Q, do you have a, a different, opinion i do i'm i'm incredibly shallow so i base mine purely on good looks and for me it's the the original the chassis the chassis one car part for a large part it just looks like an aerofoil although it didn't have quite the same aerodynamic properties as it just it, it looks so exotic i think personally when you get to sort of you know pink pig it looks a bit a bit 
bloated, a, li- a bit bigger, and sort of has lost some of that elegance. And then, and then it's almost it feels difficult to compare it to the the ten and the thirty because they're you know open top spider cars. Um, but they're, they're sort of it almost it generally almost moves with the times. That looks like a seventy shape, whereas the early cars look like that sort of more flowing sixty sports car. And and personally, I just prefer the lines and and the appearance of the the original long tail. I must admit, my appreciation for that car did go up during the course of. The, I was fortunate enough to spend a day with Porsche when they brought that's 001, the car in the magazine is 001, the very first car that led the line up at the uh, outside Zuffenhausen when uh, when the CSI delegate came along to check that they had 25, which Porsche had done, which Ferrari didn't, um, uh, and uh, and they've so I spent a day around the car and it is gorgeous actually, um, it, it really is, and I agree with the flowing lines. Um, so yeah, I think that's a fair, that's probably fair. Well, what about you then? Uh, so neither of us have gone for the the, the classic nine seven K yet. Well, I, I lean towards one towards the Canam iteration. Obviously, that'd be the the nine one seven thirty as the ultimate. Well, I, I like the fact it's a little bit out outrageous. I do like the fact that it's so connected with Penske Donahue because I find that a fascinating era. But also, there's just a, there's a wider such appeal. I just really like open top sports prototypes. Always, always like. Them. I think it's a real. It's a bit of a shame they've disappeared from Le Mans in recent years, and I just, I, I just quite like that. I know that maybe aesthetically they're less clean, but I just, I just like it. I, I, I prefer closed cars, but I agree that it's nice to have a have a mix of them. That's what you, that's what you want, really. Um, the uh, and also the the Penske livery is really cool on the Nile Seven Thirty. That dark blue and and yellow, and in fact, um, apparently. Uh, the Porsche engineers, just a little story, the Porsche engineers were a bit frustrated with the amount of paint that Penske used because Penske was all about making the cars look amazing as a kind of almost a psychological advantage before it even started. So they, I believe that at least one of the bodies, the 9730, was set in a kind of blue resin so they wouldn't have to paint it and then Penske painted it anyway. So they just, they either didn't take the hint or they deliberately ignored it. Um, but also, sort of to finish on the legacy, I think, the 9730 is probably in a way the most relevant because it's the first successful turbocharged, the, the 10 and the 30, the first successful turbocharged racing cars outside of Indy. And as Donahue points out, getting a turbo to work on a road course is a very different kettle of fish to having one that's basically fully open at Indy the whole time. So it then has a lot of what went into the 936, which won them on three times, is actually Can-Am 917. Um, 911 Turbo, which is a landmark road car, um, that was that technology. Brake technology, discs, chamfer discs, that all came out with the 917, the 9083. A lot of the exotic materials they used continued. I mean, actually, Porsche is still very into the exotic materials and lightweights and stuff. So it set the tone for Porsche, and I think, Winning, obviously, setting off the Le Mans wins as well. It just across the board, it has a big impact. And it's at a time, it's probably the beginning of the time when racing cars had to become more and more restricted. I'm not doing it. It was better back then thing because I think there's good and bad from now and from history. But it's a time where restrictions were beginning to come in because cars like 917 came along and just made it so ridiculous. 1,500 brake horsepower is just ridiculous. So... um so yeah, I think it's a, it is for me a bit of a, a bit of a milestone car. That nine seventeen thirty as well is uh, is is today. It's not been treated as some show pony. It, it makes quite regular appearances, which is great to see. It's got this beautiful patina. It's not been over restored. It stinks of race fuel, but it, it gets seen whether it's static displays. It's been at Autosport International before. It's been at Goodwood most recently. You know, you do get to you do get to see it, and 
I think that's massive, massive fair play. It's not been hidden in the Porsche Museum or behind some sort of veil. Uh, well, one thing to sort of praise a lot of the German manufacturers for, Mercedes being another, is they do look after their heritage. So they, as you say, they bring the cars. My one frustration is I really want to see a 917 just driven flat chat. Um, so I was very fortunate to be at Silverstone Classic when Gary Pearson drove Carlos Monteverdi's car. And he got the car up to about, 30, you know, it was driven properly, basically. But I'd, uh, I think we had a talk about an idea of what car-driver combination from history would you like. Yeah. Pick the car, pick the drive, pick the track. And I picked 917 Nigel Mansell, the old Silverstone. Because I just think with that whacked up to full boost, Mansell on it, that would just be something awesome to watch, wouldn't it? I think that'd be incredible. Anyway, that's a different podcast. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, some interesting ideas there. Well, if you've enjoyed our little insight into the Porsche 917, I urge you again to pick up a copy of Autosport magazine. That's that's out now and it's still available for the, the next few days. And also, if you're if you're not in the UK or you're not such a fan of paper magazines, you can uh, if you go to autosport.com and scroll down, in the bottom left, you'll see a little menu, Autosport Digital Magazine. You can get it online, uh, a version of that. And I also imagine some of these features will start to appear in the, uh, in the Plus subscribe library at, uh, at some stage yes Matt Beer asked for one and I gave him three ideas that he said oh I might have to use all three <laughs> so we maybe a compromise on two well, well there's, there's some good I mean just to go through what's in the mag you've got Kevin Turner's overview of uh, the greatest racing car debate Jake Boxer legs under the skin technical one with that great cutaway uh, there's a resurrecting the first of a famous line so that's restoring the original uh, car becoming a land speed record holder that's the Donahue attempt that we mentioned one more hurrah with Kramer which we haven't really mentioned which is the 917 revival in, in 1981 a Gary Watkins special there uh, and Ferdinand Peach uh, behind the legends so that's Gary's insight into the man who started it all and then of course uh, an article on the 917 in historic racing so you're covering the whole the whole breadth of, uh, of the 917 there so it's well worth a read thanks very much Kevin Turner and to Matt Q uh, yeah do check out autosport.com for all the latest on the world of motorsport and our plus subscribe area for all sorts of in-depth features on F1 and the whole world of, of racing from the world's leading motorsport writers Autosport Magazine as I said out every Thursday uh, check out sister titles motorsport.com F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and Motorsport News out every Wednesday and if you enjoy this podcast and you haven't already please do subscribe or drop us a like on the Spreaker website or on your uh, on your podcast deliverer of choice thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another Autosport Podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a roaring 20s murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.